Hello and welcome, beautiful people, to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And on this week's show... His regular contributor and representative, Emily Kornheiser from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. And I have lately just been enjoying so much about how you emphasize different pieces of that introduction every time. It's, I never know quite what the lilt's going to be, and there's something lovely about that. Well, thank you. Our little musical introduction, in a way. Mm-hmm. Well, Emily, you and I are going to... Uh, try to cap off the legislative session. Uh, we, as folks know, because uh, we've been talking the past couple of weeks, the 2021-2022 biennium has ended. Some people are calling it the pandemic biennium. I would love if it's only the pandemic biennium and not like multiple bienniums. That would be lovely. Looking forward to that. And I know we've been talking about it a lot, but there's a few kind of threads still hanging out there that we haven't really tied back up again. So Mm -hmm. I would love if we could do that in this show. And shall we start with the budget? Sure. I, you know, one process piece about why I think we waited until this moment, almost a month after this legislative session recessed to have this closing show is because the governor is still receiving, like was really just still receiving bills, just vetoed something yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I had had this moment of very intense frustration, like a week out of the session being like, okay, we passed everything. It's now been his six days that he's allowed to sit and think about it. Why haven't we gotten decisions about everything? And the reason is that we don't message everything over to the governor's office immediately. Oh, listen, I didn't know that. Yes. After things pass, they all get a final moment in the, under the microscope or the magnifying glass from legislative council. Mm -hmm. And so they all get a final review before they head over. And there's only so many staff who can do that. Right. And so I think there's some sort of strategic order to it. But the actual sort of dates at which things get sent off is dependent on staff time in our legislative office regarding sort of like proofreading of technical checks. And so that's why all these weeks later, we are still hearing action on different bills. And so the governor's six days begins not from when the legislature makes its final vote, but from when it actually lands on his desk. Yes. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Thank you for that. Yeah. That piece, Emily. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I right as I was prepping for this show, I, I went to the governor's website, and he does keep a log of what legislation he has signed and whether it's passed, vetoed, passed without a signature, that type of thing. And And for folks looking for that, it's called actions taken by the governor. Yes. And it's on his like kind of personal web governor's webpage. Mm -hmm. I think it would be the same URL if we had a different governor though. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Not, not Scott's personal webpage, his office's personal webpage. Sorry, his department page. Maybe that's the better way of saying it. But I was going through it and it I had a little chuckle because for those who listened a couple of weeks ago to our conversation with John Walters, where we got a little cheeky about democracy-inspired cocktails, I, I was thinking our capricious veto cocktail might need to come with like a, a chaser of bitters. <laughs> through it it's like veto 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 and I know we're going to dive in to the budget in a minute but you know Emily as you're watching everything come off the governor's desk uh, you know having worked so hard on some of these items you know this is I think an important part of the the democratic process is that we don't always get everything we want mm-hmm. for a whole host of reasons some of them fair some of them unfair so how are you sitting with that right now? Now that this biennium is done. Hmm. Fair and unfair. 
I like. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, like that? <laughs> I do. It's fascinating. It's not really how I think about it most of the time. I think about laws being fair or unfair, but I very rarely think about the process as being fair or unfair. When I get more of that just sort of feeling like that, you know, six-year-old kind of feeling of like, that's unfair. Mm-hmm. That's usually more when we're sort of bargaining against ourselves. Hmm. So the governor is this particular governor, mm-hmm. in addition to being quite famous for his, what's what's the word? It's not rapacious veto. Capricious? Capricious vetoes, yes. <laughs> um, the reason that they're capricious is because there is no communication in advance about what will be vetoed and what will not be vetoed and what is desired. There mm-hmm. are these often these super duper vague policy proposals at the very beginning of the session, and then just like a step back and watch us carry on with our work, which would be fine if you would then accept the will of the people and sign them or allow them to pass into law. So, but what often happens in that process is because we're not entirely sure and we want something to, we have sort of a better something than nothing Mm -hmm. attitude generally as Democrats, Sometimes we'll bargain against ourselves with little to no information, just like people reading the tea leaves. And so that often feels very unfair to me. I feel like my colleagues are being unfair to my other colleagues or Mm. my colleagues are being unfair to me, or I'm being unfair to my other colleagues about these, like, we're really just like making up strategy, you know, Mm -hmm. based on little to no intelligence. But what actually is unfair, more than just sort of that feeling of unfairness, I think, is this idea that pieces would be vetoed, bills would be vetoed when no one showed up at the table to express any desires or discontents. Yeah. And so the pension veto is the best example of that. Mm-hmm. After saying for you know years even, like this is a legislative issue and I'm going to let the legislature lead on this. Um, and then having your own staff at the table as part of the bargaining conversation and then to still veto it is just wildly bizarre and unfair. But I think what's sort of interesting is that often when the vetoes are very unfair, often the Republicans in the legislature will get more of a sort of pride in the division of powers and in sort of our legislative power than they will in partisan politics. And so, you know, when we unanimously overrode the governor's veto of the pension bill, I think it was because of this feeling of like, that's not fair. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Very fascinating. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say anything else you're kind of sitting with, you know, we're, we're starting a new phase. Most people are starting to campaign now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for a lot of people, the session is far behind them. Yeah. Um, It feels sort of far behind me at this moment, even though there's still signatures and vetoes rolling in. I am actually genuinely struck once I have a little bit of it in the rearview mirror that we really got a lot done. Yeah. Yep. It's kind of amazing how much we got done given sort of the lay of the land and the capacity of humans these days. And Mm -hmm all of the profound needs in our communities, we really did get a lot done. And so that's the biggest thing that's sitting with me, I think. And that when I try to sort of list, you know, what are the pieces I'm most proud of or favorite parts, I always leave out like huge swaths of amazing policy that got through. So I've like gone through a whole bunch of lists a whole bunch of times and completely let go of something that I was incredibly excited about which is this rethinking of how the Department of Aging and Independent Living does their yeah, work yeah. and how that actually like that whole redesign process is being led by like Brattleboro area, Wyndham County families mm-hmm. and like how that happened because this group of families has been collaborating with each other for like 20 something years around their kids and were willing to be super active and communicating with us And then our colleagues were really willing and able to collaborate with them. And it's just like, it is so cool how that is happening. And that's something that like, I had so much focus on and pride in. And then like, when I'm listing things, it's not even, you know, so there's so, so, so many details like that, that I can't even make another list. And so I'm excited to just sort of try to do a big picture run through with you, Olga. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, then let's dive into the budget. 
Okay. What for you? Because it gets a lot of coverage mm-hmm. in the press, our, our state budget. Mm-hmm. So for you, what do you think are the, the really big takeaways? So one is around water. Mm-hmm. So usually when we talk about clean water in Vermont, we are talking about a really significant pot of funding that goes towards cleaning up Lake Champlain yep. because we are under orders from the EPA to do so. Yes. That is not what I'm talking about. We're still doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's great. And we're sort of on track with a plan that we set in place quite a while ago. But we invested really considerably with money from both ARPA and then an infrastructure act and then our regular budget. Mm-hmm. Whole bunch of funding focused on wastewater. And okay. so if anyone wants to go back to any time we've ever talked to Chris Campany on this show, which I think is more than once, mm-hmm. no matter what we tried to talk to him about, he would always come back <laughs> to community wastewater. Our ARPA conversation with Katie and um, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting. Um, Carolyn. Carolyn, thank you. Katie mm-hmm. and Carolyn also came back to wastewater. I mean, Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyone who works in towns larger than Brattleboro and smaller than Brattleboro, excuse me, and has any desire to do anything around housing or commerce. And by commerce, I mean like general stores with little cafes attached to them. I'm not talking about like, you know, yeah. your next outlet center. Anyone who does that, including Chris Campany, who is the greatest cheerleader for this, is really deeply invested in our need to invest in wastewater. And we have very few policy tools available to communities to take these projects on themselves. Mm-hmm. And so whole like $31 million for stormwater retrofits, 15 million for design and construction of community scale water and decentralized wastewater projects to underserve designated centers. So I could see Mountain Home being one of those. Yep. Yep. Five million to municipalities, businesses, and nonprofits to install pretreatment processes for high strength or toxic wastes. Ten million for municipalities for upgrades of wastewater systems. Twenty million to design new systems for sewer overflows. Six point five million for co-op owned and nonprofit mobile home parks to do wastewater right. work. Okay, that felt like a, that was a big win for me. Mm-hmm. Um, Fifteen million to replace failed on-site wastewater, particularly for Vermonters who are low income. Mm-hmm. And then another one point five million around leaking service lines, okay. including um, outdated fixtures like toilets and dishwashers and laundries. Mm -hmm. high efficiency devices. And then there's like sort of even more than that around the revolving loan fund and this infrastructure investment jobs act and a whole bunch of other money related to that lead service line money replacement. And we have a lot of that. We don't talk about that as much in Vermont, Mm -hmm. um, but we do have that. And there are lots of places in the state, you know, in the village centers or even in Burlington that still have ceramic pipes which lasts an incredibly long time, but are very expensive to replace. Mm -hmm. And so that feels really fantastically exciting and is really, you know, the mobile home park, the low income stuff, the, and the collapsing or integration of what happens in the home with devices, what happens in the workplace with devices and how that connects to municipal systems, both inputs and overflows. Mm. And thinking about that in the context of clean water, sort of clean groundwater as well as clean drinking water mm-hmm. and braiding all of these different funding sources together to do that. That's like very new for Vermont. And that mm. feels really, really exciting. That is very exciting. Yeah. Because we should mention too, I mean, when it comes to water quality issues, like Emily said, a lot of focus is put on Lake Champlain. But the Connecticut and the West River and all the watersheds kind of on the eastern side of the Greens have their issues as well. And and so it's not just Lake Champlain that needs to be dealt with. And then, as Chris has said, if anybody wants to expand their development footprints, housing, commercial, in a lot of our towns, we don't have the wastewater capacity to do it safely. Mm-hmm. And Kathy Erfer, who um, lives in Brattleboro, but is sort of the custodian of the whole Connecticut River Valley mm-hmm. with uh, the Connecticut River Consortium. 
Conservatory? Conservatory. Russian? Anyway. They changed their name and I never remember. Kathy, if you ever want to remind us, please feel free. Yes, please do. <laughs> or come on the show to discuss. The pollutants that upset the water makeup and the west side and the east side of the state are totally different. Yeah. And most of what our emphasis has been on sort of the west side pollutants. Mm-hmm. And then there are also the issues of PFOAs, lead, and septic um, in terms of, sort mm-hmm. of folks' consumption and what that means. And so anyway, that's all incredibly exciting. Yeah. Yes. And then last time when we were on the show and talking to John, we talked about climate mm-hmm. and the fact that our sort of landmark flag idioms still haven't come back to me since the session ended long ago. I don't know if I'll ever come back. I might just be idiom free for a while, which is probably for the best. Eh, I don't know. Um, They can be colorful. They can, but anyway. Anyway, your your flagship piece of climate legislation. Our flagship piece of climate legislation. It got vetoed by the governor. That was the clean heat standard. But there's a whole lot of climate action in the budget. Mm, Okay. And so a massive increase in the amount of money going to the home weatherization assistance program that is carried out through the capstone agencies like SEVCA. So $45 million going there, $35 million to, to the electric efficiency fund that essentially goes the same paths um, to Vermonters of moderate income. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge, new, exciting move. More money in electric vehicle charging stations and infrastructure, 20 million for low and moderate income households to upgrade home electrical systems to enable the installation of energy saving technologies such as hot um, heat pumps mm-hmm. and things like that. $2 million to purchase electric equipment for heating, cooling, and vehicle charging. More for um, 15 million for landscape resilience and to mitigate flood hazards. Mm-hmm. That is also, there's a bunch of money in the transportation bill for issues like that, that I don't have the numbers for in front of me, but culverts are so important. They really are. Well, and, so and I seem to remember the last time I wrote a mud season story for the commons, I had a great conversation with someone at the state who I can't remember, but it sounds like a lot of this probably weaves into the road runoff work. Yes. That the V-Trans has been trying to do. Yes. Or Agency of Environmental Conservation. Maybe that's the Department of DEC. Department of Environmental Conservation. Yeah. And so $15 million for landscape resilience and to mitigate flood hazards. I think we all know that that's a big issue down mm-hmm. here in Brattleboro and a lot of other places around the state. $5 million for to assist farmers in focusing on doing all these same things, you know, Mm -hmm. soil retention, nutrient retention, reducing runoff essentially, which I think last time Abby Course came on here, who's a farmer from Whitingham, she is very clear. And I appreciate this clarity that she comes with that you can't just tell farmers what to do. They generally know what they need to do and just can't afford to do it or can't sort of technical assistance their minds into it. And so being able to actually invest as a state in helping farmers make these transitions is huge. And then a million dollars for the urban and community forestry program to plant up to 5,000 trees to reduce heat island effects and improve air quality. I have no memory of discussing any of that last thing on in a legislative conversation. So I'm looking forward to maybe figuring out what that is eventually. Okay. But I do and have heard research before that Vermont actually um, somewhat embarrassingly actually has more of a heat island problem than you might expect given how profoundly green we are. Mm -hmm. Our urban areas are very unconscious of heat island effects in a way that larger cities um, are have learned to be more aware. Fascinating. And those things make a big difference in sort of the quality of life in the face of global warming for folks who are living in those areas. Mm -hmm. And then there is a final investment on these sort of towards those same ends in helping municipalities and cooperative electrical distribution utilities to implement advanced metering infrastructure And so when we talk about smart grids or distributed grids, that's all that's everyone says that's sort of the next necessary step in a 
green electrification of Vermont. Mm -hmm. And that is something that Green Mountain Power has been doing a lot of work on because they have huge amount of cash flow available to them as a multinational, you know, publicly traded corporation to be investing in that stuff. Mm -hmm. Our smaller electrical co-ops don't necessarily have the funds to be doing that. And so we're assisting them in making that transition. Okay. Okay. So that's all of the sort of water, electric, climate, awesome investments that we're making. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then childcare. Yeah. Another big topic. Another big topic. So last year we signed a huge piece of childcare legislation that sort of set in motion a future universe in Vermont where no Vermonter will pay more than 10% of their income towards child. Right. We had a couple of conversation with Chloe Leary and um, Kelly, Kelly, uh, Payala? Yeah. She came on the show too, I think, to talk about it. Oh, Kelly, the legislator. I don't actually remember her coming on the show. Oh shoot. Maybe I just interviewed her for the commons. There is also a Kelly who used to work at the Early Childhood Alliance, Advocacy Alliance. Maybe. Kelly Alt. But I don't remember if she ever came on the show either. Well, sorry, Kellys, if I am remembering you all wrong. (laughs) Which Kelly was it? Anyway, so when we set that in motion, um, that sort of set, in addition to sort of lowering the amount that Vermonters would need to pay, which means that subsidies are going to need to increase significantly, Mm-hmm. We talk about childcare as a three-legged stool. Quality is another part of the stool. And then in order for that to happen, childcare workers need to be paid like a yeah. real living wage because it is a highly qualified, very, very difficult job. And we've talked about that before in the show. And so this year, we put a lot more pieces in place to sort of move towards improving the workforce, the childcare workforce. And continuing that step towards lowering costs for Vermonters, though the bulk of the cost lowering work is going to happen next year because we're waiting on a child care funding study to be completed this summer. So this last year, CCFAP, which is our sort of federally funded child care program that is then supplemented with state money we expanded the eligibility requirements for that financial assistance from 300% of the federal poverty level to 350% of the federal poverty level. Mm. And we increased the rates for centers to be reimbursed from the 50th to the 75th percentile. Mm -hmm. And so all families below 150% of the poverty level qualifies for having no co-pays at all for their childcare costs. Wow. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of IT upgrades that are deeply necessary to make sort of that whole subsidy system work properly. Mm -hmm. We gave access for early educators to a pretty massive loan repayment program and to a scholarship program for new folks entering the field. And then we invested a bunch of money in just sort of keeping the COVID frazzled destroyed childcare system from crashing. And so those were the more immediate need pieces. And so um, $27 million was invested in sort of childcare centers for stabilization. 6 million went directly to workers for retention bonuses. And then another $1 million sort of a few months later for retention bonuses. And about a million dollars going to sort of larger associations in order to provide subgrants for capacity building at child care centers, more money to children's integrated services that supports early intervention and mental health supports for children and centers, and then money for a pre-apprenticeship program for high school students who are thinking about entering the field oh, so that they can really consider if that they might want to do that as the next step. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Huh. So lots and lots of money in like basically every little trickle on piece of the whole system, including the parent-child centers. Fantastic. And then other things related to children that I think we've talked about before are the massive child tax credit. Yeah. That's related to families, but not necessarily child care. But we also expanded the child care tax credit that we have. Oh, okay. Into a much higher proportion of the federal tax credit. 
as well as it used to be refundable for very low income folks and non-refundable above that threshold. And now it's refundable for everyone. We have talked already about the reach up program. Yes. I noticed. Taylor. Yep. Looks like that passed. Yep. And so that passed and got signed into law. That's really exciting changes and how we both sort of implement and support folks who are receiving reach up or TANF money, but also increases the amount of money going to those families. Fantastic. And that was H464 for anyone who's following along at home. Wow. Nice memory there. I'll tell you. (laughs) And then as we know, the child youth and family advocate um, also passed. I did some, we did some celebrating of that last week. Very excited for that one for Wyndham County families. There was a time, because we've been working on this one for a while, that a bunch of us agreed, like, what if maybe it was just a county, a single county pilot, it could just be a Wyndham County pilot, maybe that would be good enough. But I am excited to say it is now a statewide program. Congratulations. We we know that that has been a big one on your list. Mm-hmm. So, um, Is there a bird where you are, Olga? <laughs> I was hoping no one could hear that. So the cat has woken up from his nap. And has decided that he, of all the toys that are on the floor, he's going to pick the one that actually makes noise. Ah, oh, very nice choice. Because mm-hmm. that's how cats roll. It is. <laughs> is it bothering you? I can take it away. No, I would just thought it was a nice bird that you had outside your window. And I was curious what kind of bird it was. It, it is a yellow and squeaky orange toy. stuff, squeaky toy bird. Um, On that note, we actually need to head to break, folks. So the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. We'll be right back after a word from our underwriters and the squeaky toy. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor Emily Kordenheiser, who is one of three reps from the town of Brattleboro. If you are have a hankering to listen to our shows along with uh, the radio station, you can also find us on BCTV as well as wherever you find your podcasts or at Emily's YouTube channel or at our uh, website, the themontpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm. So you can check us out on any of those many channels. <laughs> <laughs> so Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, Olga, it turns out after much research that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests and not those of the radio or TV station this might be broadcast on. Nope. It is solely ours. Mm -hmm. Isn't that refreshing? So refreshing. So refreshing (laughs) to just be representing myself. Yes. Mm -hmm. So before the break, Emily, you had summed up some of the pieces of the state budget that had passed, including talking about water quality, climate change, and childcare issues. But I suspect we have plenty more. So shall we dive back in? Yeah. So in agriculture this last year, there was some work on accessory on-farm businesses and how to make them easier to start and maintain. Is that like um, a farm store or? It can be a farm store, but it can go further than that. So let's say you're a berry farm and you want to make jam. Okay. Or you're hops farm and you want to make hopped soda which is one of my favorite new things Ooh, um okay. I you know, like hops, like so it's all yours okay i just i love all the things bitter anyway so that's what an accessory on farm business is and so ways that those or um like an agritourism bed and breakfast kind of thing gotcha and so looking at ways to make that easier Also, sort of towards that same one particular accessory on-farm business might be the growing of cannabis, which when the cannabis, retail cannabis legislation passed, um, did not pass as an agricultural product. 
Oh, that's right. Because we wanted to ensure that the environmental regulations for the growing of cannabis were stricter than the environmental regulations that we use for the growing of other agricultural products. Mm-hmm. Because of some really just horror stories from California and a few other states. Well, cannabis so, is an intensive crop. It's a very intensive crop, yes. Yeah. And so, however, we created one little loophole this year, essentially, which is small scale cannabis cultivation, like really, really tiny scale mm-hmm. as this can essentially count as agriculture. Okay. And that would be sort of an accessory crop on a regular farm. And then the Working Lands Enterprise Initiative, which is a program um, that sits, I think, in the Agency of Commerce, actually, and is a major investor. If you see something cool that a farm is doing in Wyndham County, it was most likely funded through a working lands grant. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I know two of the really like fabulous farm stands that were set up during the pandemic in this area um, were funded through working lands grants. And there's a bunch of other ways they're used. And so budget wise, we invested a lot more in the working lands enterprise initiative. Fantastic. Other, I'm going to keep on just buzzing through here. Go for it. Okay. So big picture in the budget, it was $8.3 billion, Mm -hmm. which is a 5% increase over the current fiscal year. Okay. And it includes $453.7 million in federal COVID relief, which completes the allocations of the $1.2 billion received through ARPA. It includes an long, long overdue rate increase of 8% to community mental health providers, designated agencies, specialized service agencies, and home health care providers. And so that's very, very exciting. And I know that you've been waiting a long time for that cat to come visit you on the desk. You knew that was something that was going to happen on this show. And so we're just going to revel in it. Mm-hmm. This is Atlas. Yes. Yes. I was just looking at a chart earlier today about home health care providers and sort of community mental health providers around the country and what their rate of pay is and was actually pleased to see that Vermont or, and then sort of simultaneously disappointed, but Vermont's actually on the higher range nationally, but we're still in sort of like the 15 to $20 an hour range. Yeah. And that is tough work that folks are doing and is really like forms the base of keeping our communities and our neighbors stable. So well, and um, this, this rate increase is something that a number of agencies have been asking for for a while. It wasn't just, a, oh, let's do it because of COVID. Oh, no, no. It's, um, you know, it was sort of more desperate because of workforce shortages. But as someone who sort of worked in one of those agencies that receives those Medicaid reimbursements, it was really an impossible situation, especially since so many of them are unionized and have regular step increases. Mm -hmm. And so if someone stays in an agency long enough, all of a sudden the gap between what the agency is paying them and what the state is paying that agency becomes so wide. And so it's not just an issue of how to make sure that folks' wages are decent. It is, that's a huge part of it, but also to keep those agencies' budgets from bottoming out Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when they are doing the right thing and paying people a living wage. And so that also increases... In addition to that, there was also millions that went to substance use disorder prevention and recovery that we'll talk about, as well as increased funds for the adult day programs. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Like the gathering place here in Brattleboro, as well as Vermont Legal Aid and the Vermont Healthcare Advocate, who have done just the wildest, deepest work through the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I'll talk about workforce money, but in, you know, in sort of addition to the regular workforce money, the University of Vermont's base budget was increased by $10 million for the first time in 14 years. We um, invest less in our state college system than any other um, state, actually. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the state college system had a base increase of $10 million as well, plus $15 million as a bridge for the merging and rearranging that they're doing. Right. We're going to talk about housing in a minute. Sorry, I'm scrolling through. So excuse me for the lack of eye contact of people inside the TV. That's okay. The the cat is also laying on my notes. So uh, I'm going to ask this question very badly because I can't see my notes. There was also a work workforce compensation bill that I think the governor signed like in the last couple of weeks. Yes. And that Tristan came on the show. Okay. That that's at some point a few weeks ago to talk about months Not that long ago, Tristan came on the show and that's what we were talking about was S11. And I'll run through that in a a minute or two, if that's okay. Thank you. Okay. 
So I think when we were talking to John Walters we, and talking about vetoes, most of the policy pieces related to substance use disorder were vetoed. Mm. There was some really good work that continued. There was some really good policy that was sort of continuing our work on decriminalization related substances. There was some legislation that was sort of going to even just put in place penalties that like cocaine and crack cocaine like had the same penalty because they're the same drug, which is just like terrible racist nonsense that's been going on since the eighties. Changed that, changed a little bit of sort of how we think about our, um, the role of our community-based providers in thinking about all of these substance use issues. A lot of really good policy was vetoed, but the state budget includes some really massive investments in some of this stuff. And so that's pretty good too. Mm -hmm. So $4 million to substance misuse prevention, which includes tobacco. Okay. $2 million for residential treatment and recovery housing and sober beds. You know, we talk about not having a waiting list but that's just really not true. Right. People right. still need to wait. Yeah. An increase in the base budgets for the recovery center. So that's the turning points for mm-hmm. folks who might not know what a recovery center is. A bunch of funding for folks transitioning from incarceration related to recovery. And then a bunch of funding for employment services that are embedded at recovery centers as a pilot program, which is exciting. And then somewhere around a million dollars, little less going to AIDS prevention programs that do a lot of needle exchange and wound care and harm reduction activities around our communities mm-hmm. with folks who aren't, be, that sort of goes beyond the clients who are HIV positive. Mm-hmm. And then rate increases for residential treatment providers. Okay. S11 is the Economic Development Bill. Mm-hmm. So it includes another $19 million to extend forgiver, forgivable loans for businesses that has been going on since the very beginning of the pandemic. We've sort of continued to put more and more money into that. And there are still some businesses that haven't finished their recovery or transition. Okay. One of those sectors is still the creative economies. People are still very hesitant to go out to see the arts and to go inside specifically right. to see the arts, right? right? And so there's a specific program for that of $9 million, $12.5 million for nursing and healthcare, mm-hmm. $4.5 million for the trades. And a lot of that is focused around our um, career and technical education centers, a program that creates a supplemental COVID paid family medical leave program mm-hmm. that essentially reimburses employers who don't normally provide leave. Okay. Provide paid leave for COVID positive employees. An expansion of our unemployment, some money towards unemployment insurance, community recovery grants of $10 million, an expansion of the downtown and village center tax credit program that I think we talked about on mm-hmm. a previous show. Mm-hmm. And, and a continuation of the Everyone Eats program, oh, which is wow. very exciting, I think, to a lot of folks in the Brattleboro area. Those programs, which now occur statewide, really got their start in Brattleboro and in Burlington Mm -hmm. between sort of the skinny pancake universe and Brattleboro's downtown business Alliance. And so that's pretty exciting. And the statewide coordinator is a Brattleboro person at this point. That is a program when I have talked to folks across the state, when we talk about COVID that gets pointed to over and over again as helping both businesses and folks who are hungry. And that's a great example of pulling multiple levers to me. I agree. And one of the other things I really like about it is it's not just folks who are hungry. It's like folks who like don't have time to make dinner that night or the threshold for getting meals there mm-hmm. is so, so low open Yeah, that I, you know, I've been working and talking for years and years about how to remove stigma on different programs that support families and humans And that one, I think, is a really shining example of, like, if you just don't feel like cooking dinner that night, you can stop by and, like, you have a need because you're tired, right? I love that. Yeah. Really fun, forgivable loan program for recent Vermont College and University graduates who commit to work in Vermont for two years. Fantastic. Yeah. So those are $5,000 forgivable loans. So that makes a dent Mm -hmm. depending on what your scholarship situation is. The healthcare grants, some of it is loans to healthcare workers and reimbursements for healthcare workers, but 
There's also Vermont State Colleges have huge waiting lists for people to get into their nursing programs Mm. because they don't have enough nursing faculty, actually. Right. Because you make more money nursing than you do Mm facultying. I think people call that teaching. Yeah. And (laughs) so we're putting some funding into um, increasing that pay to incentivize folks to get into teaching. Yeah, I was talking to... Claudio Fort, who is the CEO and president of the Rutland Regional Medical Center. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's also along with the waiting list of students to get into teaching um, nursing programs. On the other end of that, we have a lot of hospitals who are paying extra money for traveling nurses or traveling doctors. Um, and so Rutland Regional is actually partnering with some local education programs where they are some of their nursing staff have gone out to teach so that they can bring more workforce into the hospital. Yes. That's just, that is exactly the thing that we're trying to support. So I love that you have a real world example. (laughs) Well, what I like about it is it, it, I don't know. It just feels like so much synchronicity between what you guys are working on at the state level and what's happening at the community level. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that, the, workforce crisis in nursing has been going on a lot or been talked about a lot longer Mm -hmm. than a lot of the other workforce shortages that our people or folks are talking about right now. And so there's been a very comprehensive working group connected to the legislature um, made up of folks who work in the healthcare system that have been sort of designing a lot of these programs for us. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is not just like a magical miracle that it is aligned (laughs) with what's actually happening in communities. I think we all know that schools have been deeply drowning since the pandemic started. And so we have about $6 million in funding that focuses on COVID recovery support for teachers, staff, and students. And so some of that is sort of mental health support for teachers and staff, and some of it is mental health support that we're teaching teachers and staff to bring to students. Okay. Universal Meals was signed by the governor. I'm a little bit shocked. Wow, me too. All signs pointed to no way, but Mm -hmm. got signed. I have received more constituent communication around this bill than any others ever and all supportive of it, which is interesting given that Brattleboro actually already had universal meals before this passed because it was federally funded. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, really exciting. What universal meals looks like isn't just that families don't have to pay. It also removes so much of the stigma related to free lunch, mm-hmm. so that more kids who are eligible will actually be eating the meal. Well, and I, I think it also reduces just a lot of the paperwork and tracking and staff time that yes. can free up schools to do other things. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So that's very exciting, too. Mm-hmm. A bill around school mascots passed and was signed that they can't be discriminatory. Yeah. I'm curious to see how that plays itself out. Um, I think Rutland is a really um, hot place to watch for the debacle that is Mm -hmm. um, school mascots. And I don't know if we talk, I don't think we have talked about this bill on the show yet, but during the debate about it, one member, not to get too partisan, but it was definitely Republican who said this, said that they, you know, would compare the removal of school of native American school mascots to the next phase in Vermont's eugenics history. Oh, I, yes, I remember. Yeah. Did I mention that on the show before? I really can't mm, get it out of my head. It was no, a really I, I heard it shining, terrible moment. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that passed, mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. despite some terrible things being said. S-287 got signed into law. That's a people waiting bill. We've talked yep. about that multiple times on the show. There was a small update to Act 35. Oh, okay. That was around expulsion and suspension and really clarifying a lot of the rules around suspension and expulsion. Okay. And it was expanded to include independent schools and pre-K programs for suspending or expelling a student under eight years of age. And so I'm very excited about that. When I worked um, for Building Bright Futures, I helped set up a task force there that looked at the issue of suspension and expulsion in young children. And it is really horrifying and outrageous um, how much it happens in our kindergartens, in our early care and education centers, in our Mm -hmm. pre-K programs, and in the younger years. 
And a lot of it is that schools don't have the resources or the capacity or the knowledge to properly care for students with behavioral problems. Right, right. That is not the student's fault and the student should not be punished for that. And so I was excited to see that expansion. Energy and technology, clean heat standard vetoed, put huge amounts more money, $150 million of federal stimulus funds into communication union districts, and then another $95 million that will then be supplemented by another hundred plus million from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act when that um, comes when that money comes all the way through. Okay. And so we're then talking about, I guess that's like four hundred million dollars going to broadband, something more than that going to broadband rollout and the communication union districts. There was just an article, maybe in Digger, about how like the actual fiber is now on the ground in some communities and being rolled out, and so that's really happening. Isn't that incredible? Because it kind of felt like it never would at some points. Yes. Yes. And then a little secret detail that we have not talked about a lot that is super duper interesting is artificial intelligence and the state's role in both using it and protecting folks from it. Mm. And so we created a new division at the Agency of Digital Services to be looking into those issues. There's a lot of implicit discriminatory. Yeah happenings that are connected to the use of AI in government. And so I'm glad that we are stepping into that aspect of the technology. Mm -hmm. Okay. Housing. Yes. Big Big picture. We have invested total in housing over the last biennium, $376 million, basically. So that is... $20 million to forgivable loans to bring rental properties up to code, $22 million in new construction to lower costs for middle-income homebuyers, plus another million to VHFA for down payment grants for first-generation homebuyers, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. A bunch of changes to zoning and tax credits and pilot programs to encourage denser development and town centers. We created an, an advisory land access board at the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board that Mm -hmm. focuses on historically marginalized populations gaining access to land and housing. We further extended protections around discrimination and harassment for renters and home buyers. We created a contractor registry so that the people actually building all of these things, we know that they are both protected and consumers are protected with them. And then basically all of the rest of that enormous pot of money went towards new affordable housing construction through agencies like Wyndham Windsor Housing Trust. And we're really starting to see the fruits of some of that funding come home in Brattleboro. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission before. Yep, which officially passed. Mm -hmm. We expanded burial options this last year. We've never talked about that. That could be super duper fun conversation sometime. Okay. 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 We changed some liquor laws. Hmm. So ready to drink cocktails, Mm -hmm. which are generally single serve portions, usually cans of alcohol that sort of the actual can has around the same proof of as say a beer or a Mm -hmm. can of wine, but they are made out of distilled spirits Mm. and some sort of mixer have historically only been served in Vermont liquor stores, sold in Vermont liquor stores, and now they can be sold anywhere that sells beer or wine. Okay. There was also something about vermouth and other fortified spirits in the bill that got removed by the Senate at the last minute for reasons I don't understand. Hmm. This, what I just said to you was like incredibly controversial and I still don't quite understand why. Liquor laws in Vermont always fascinate me. Yes. Yep. Because they often end up being controversial and you're like, can you really? Yes. Yes. You've been able to buy sort of like Jim Beam and Coke in a can in New Hampshire anywhere since like the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, We've talked about redistricting before, but I'll say it again. We redistricted. And that means that we have new districts in Wyndham County. My district is now Wyndham 7. It's almost the same as it used to be. But certain the boundary part, lines, the boundary lines, but a little part of Upper Dummerston Road is not in my district anymore. A little bit of Meadowbrook is not in my district anymore. And the st- stretch of Route 5 
between Canal Street and Guilford is also not in my district anymore, as well as Winston Prouty, which was once in my district and now is not. Okay. Folks can find the maps of that um, on your town clerk's website. Yeah. The pension bill we have talked about a lot. It passed, it got vetoed, we overrode the veto, hurrah. <laughs> we have two constitutional amendments that went forward this year. They're gonna be on the ballot. One of them is the Reproductive Liberty Amendment that we've talked about at length. Is The other one is amending Vermont's constitution related to slavery. That's right. Okay, I'm gonna keep on going, take a breath. Telemedicine became a huge deal during the pandemic. We passed a bunch of emergency rules related to telemedicine. We have then come back and struck a middle ground where folks who are going to practice telemedicine in the state of Vermont need to essentially register in order to do that so that Vermonters who are receiving that telemedicine care have some sort of protections in place for them. Great. And then we threw a lot of money at the healthcare system and it wasn't enough. And we need to drastically reconsider what it means to provide health care mm-hmm. in the state of Vermont. Yes, it does. Yes. I think I've gotten through most of the big appropriations. Okay. And what's left are some policy pieces that we could talk about in another show. Fantastic. Like, I think maybe we should have a show soon about the guns. Oh, the guns. Always interesting to talk about the guns. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Making a note. So, hey, folks, that was Emily's lovely rundown. And I'm always extremely impressed how you managed to get 10 pounds of financial potatoes in like a three pound podcast bag. So thank you for that. (laughs) Always appreciate it. And we hope listeners, this was useful for you. We hope to see you next week. As always, Emily, where can folks find more information? about you. Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and find links to all my social media accounts as well as my email and phone number and new events and happenings coming up. And you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour every Friday at 2 o'clock on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station, as well as wherever you find your podcasts, our Facebook page, or our website, which Google the Montpelier Happy Hour, it should pop up. And... As always, everyone, have a great weekend, and we will see you all next week. Take care.